be seated, and our children through fifth grade are invited to attend Children's Church. I love that song. I love it so much, and I love that I get to sing it with you this morning. Hey, if you have your Bible with you, would you please open up to the book of Micah? And we're going to be in Micah chapter 7 this morning. And if you're using that Pew Bible, you'll find Micah chapter 7 on page 827. And if you hang around with us on the regular, you're thinking, hey, didn't we finish Micah last week? Well, we did. And we're going to go back to it one more Sunday. So uh, I'll, uh, I'll lay it out for you here in just a moment. But while you're turning to Micah chapter 7, a uh, couple of quick things I want to run by you. First of all, I'm excited to announce that we have a candidate for youth director. His name is Joe Delaporta. And these uh, little information pieces are around the church. And you might have seen this and thought, those aren't real humans. That's like a stock photo they put when they're selling picture frames at Hobby Lobby or whatever. These are real human beings. This is Joe. This is Hannah. That's his real hairline. And let me tell you, um, I love these two people. Uh, they're a gift from God that we get to consider Joe as the candidate for our youth director position. Uh, make sure you grab one of these on the back or on the inside of some information about Joe uh, as well as uh, a schedule on the back for when you can meet him. His candidate weekend is going to be June 24th and 25th. That information is here. And then uh, we will have a special called meeting to vote on his candidacy on Sunday, July 2nd. I want you to be here. If you've got teenagers, make sure you know about this and, uh, and get to know Joe. Pray for Joe and his wife, Hannah, and for our church as we consider his candidacy. Two other quick things to run by you. One is uh, you're invited to my daughter's wedding, July 1st, 2 o'clock here at the church. Love for you to be here and celebrate with us as Emma and Trevor uh, exchange their vows. It's going to be a beautiful day, and I'm glad we get to share it with all of you, July 1st at 2 o'clock. And then, as Mike prayed, uh, I begin my sabbatical leave tomorrow, and I have very mixed feelings about it, strongly mixed feelings about it. But thank you for praying for me that over this time I would, uh, I would be sanctified. I would uh, wrestle with uh, my own sin, that I would rest, that I would make the most of time with my family, and uh, I will be back Labor Day weekend, and I can't get here fast enough. Now, I'll be back for the Joe stuff, the, those things that we have to do for our youth director candidate. I'll be back for those, but um, uh, I'll miss you. Thank you for praying. Thank you for the kindness and generosity of, of this sabbatical, and um, you're in good hands for the summer. There's no doubt about that. We're in Micah chapter 7 uh, to start this morning. I used to have an enemy named Denise. This was at our previous church in another state, in another life. Uh, I detested Denise. Uh, she was abrasive, argumentative, harsh, vulgar. She was combative. I was innocent, she was guilty. <laughs> For a very long time, I did not like her, she did not like me. But slowly, as things tend to do, uh, things began to change between us. I had opportunities to care for her and her family, and she also extended care to me in some surprising ways. And so our interactions gradually changed from combat to kindness. We came to know each other beyond our old conflicts, 
Uh, and by the time my family and I left that church and we moved here, Denise and I had become uh, truly very dear friends. It's a real gift from God. Now, many people have the kind of relationship with the book of Micah that you could rename it Old Denise. <laughs> Micah is combative. Uh, Micah is harsh. Sometimes the language is graphic. You just start reading chapter 1. It's a kick in the teeth. And so why would you spend time reading something like that when you could read something that's fluffier and nicer and more familiar? But I hope over the time of our study of the book of Micah, what you found is that the message of Micah is hopeful and encouraging and empowering. And so maybe we can still rename the book of Micah, but instead we call it New Denise. And that's a fitting name because it is a treasure of a book. One of my goals in preaching through books of the Bible start to finish is is that we would walk away from the study of the book with some knowledge, some, some, uh, a grasp of the main messages and the themes of the book. So it's, it's one thing for us to say, hey, we made it through Micah start to finish. But there's another level of success if you were able to say, oh, I've got a good grasp on some of the main themes and the messages, who Micah was, when his ministry occurred, and all of that. And so that's why we've set aside this Sunday at the conclusion of our study of Micah as an overview of the book of Micah. And so this morning, I want to bounce around to a few different places in Micah as we highlight major themes that illustrate the gospel in the book of Micah. When we finish a study like this, a question we should ask is, how does the book of Micah impact my faith? And, And that's a question I hope to answer this morning. When we study the book of Micah, one thing that's really important to keep in mind is the the way in which the book was composed. We sit down with this piece of literature and we might think, well, Micah sat down one day, pulled out the pen, zing, 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 wrote it all out in one sitting and then gave it to the people. But what trusted biblical scholars would tell us is that that's almost certainly not how the book of Micah was composed. Uh, The book of Micah, rather than being written in one setting, is actually a compilation of Micah's speeches or his oracles given over the course of his 30-year ministry primarily to his neighbors in the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, but also messages to the northern kingdom of Israel. The book of Micah was spoken before it was written. And that's why when you sit down to read Micah, if you just sit down to read it for the first time, it can feel a little jerky, meaning it, it, different themes pop up and fade out, and, and there's this sort of repeated pattern to it. Things show up and then disappear. There's not a nice, neat narrative flow uh, like there is to other books of the Bible that were written in one setting. But knowing that about Micah actually helps us when it comes to identifying his themes and especially in hearing the gospel from this book. And so that's my goal this morning. I, I want to highlight these themes that help us see the gospel in Micah. And there are four major themes in the book of Micah that tell the story of God's redemptive work in our lives and in this world. So the first theme that jumps out to us right off the bat in the book of Micah is that sin is a universal human problem. Micah has a lot to say about sin 
and he talks about sin in ways that, that intensifies its gravity. It, it awakens the listener so that we would hopefully share Micah's alarm over the sin in our lives. I mean, the very reason that Micah has this work to do from God is because of sin in the world around him. God didn't send prophets to celebrate and to praise people. He sent prophets to call them out of their sin and back to the God who knows them and loves them. And so there's a few key details we learn from Micah about the deep problem of our sin. The first thing he helps us understand is that sin has this destructive nature among non-religious and religious people alike. And so first of all, he shows us sin among non-religious people in a number of different places across the book. And it should come as no surprise. He identifies the idolatry and the lifestyle, the values that, that are expected among those who do not walk with God. So that's not surprising at all in the way that Micah talks about sin among non-religious people. But what is surprising is the way he talks about sin among God's people. And in fact, the vast majority of the real estate of his sin talk goes to religious people. It's sin among religious people that causes Micah the most concern. Uh, There's any number of places we could see an example of that in this book, but chapter 7, verses 2 to 4, highlight it for us in a really clear way. And so look with me, Micah chapter 7, verses 2 to 4, where Micah talks about the sin of God's people. He says this, Faithful people have vanished from the land. There's no one upright among the people. All of them wait in ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. Both hands are good at accomplishing evil. The official and the judge demand a bribe. When the powerful man communicates his evil desire, they plot it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is worse than a hedge of thorns. The day of your watchman, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, their panic is here. That's just a small glimpse of all that Micah says about the sin among God's people. God sent his prophets, not because the world was so corrupt, but because his people were so corrupt. And as this message is delivered, as Micah tells his neighbors, his fellow worshipers, about the horrors of their sin, they didn't believe him. They, they chose not to listen to him. They might have played the same games that we do sometimes when we're confronted with our own sin. They might have justified by comparing themselves to people who were worse. Well, yeah, I mean, we do some, some wrong things, but at least we're not Assyria. At least we're not Egyptian. At least we're not like these more horrible people. Those are the types of justifications that they might have used. And you have to remember that the people Micah is rebuking, they had priests. They had a temple. They had a sacrificial system. They had prophets of their own who spoke the messages that they preferred. Micah says, we're sinners in line for judgment. But here are these other competing prophets that would say things like, there's no way God could be upset with us. We're going to be okay. God's taking care of us. We're his people. What strikes me about the sins that Micah describes is how terrifyingly plain they are. The the judgment of God comes on sin, not because it is level 10 type of sin, however we would quantify that. 
But it's terrifyingly common sin that articulates or illustrates just how terribly far we are from God. And so some of the sins of the religious people that are identified in the book of Micah include things like idolatry and coveting, the rejection of prophets like Micah, corrupt leaders, injustice, hatred of God, hatred of other people, and pride. Micah teaches us that religion cannot serve as justification for sin. Those who follow Jesus cannot presume upon His grace while blatantly violating His revealed will. When we read Micah's descriptions of the sins of Israel, it should lead us to humble examination of our own lives. We should read Micah's warnings as if they're spoken directly to us. You see, the fact that we are redeemed and numbered among God's children doesn't mean the threat of sin is less to us, but rather our salvation should lead us to a greater sensitivity to sin and a greater desire for holiness with the greater power of the Holy Spirit given to us to overcome our sin. If we've been freed from sin's penalty, then we have power from God to be free from sin's power in its presence in our lives. Confession and repentance have to begin with the family of faith. We don't want to be like those that hear the prophet and say, that's for other people. We have to let the prophet's words pierce our hearts and examine our souls that we would walk faithfully in holiness with God. Sin is a universal human problem. If we've studied Micah right, we're going to walk away understanding that Horrors of sin, not just outside the faith, but the horrible impact of sin inside the faith. So the first major theme in the book of Micah that shows us the gospel is the problem of sin. The second major theme in the book of Micah involves God's response to sin. How does God respond to human sinfulness? He responds in two ways. God responds to sin with judgment and mercy. God responds with judgment and mercy. Those two are tied to one another and cannot be separated. In Micah's ministry, God responds in this way over and over again. There are multiple repetitions of God's judgment on display and God's mercy promised as well. And so the promise of God's judgment actually opens the very book of Micah. Flip over with me to chapter 1. Chapter 1, starting in verse 2, the book opens with God's judgment on the sins of his people and the people of earth. Micah chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Listen, all you peoples. Pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him, and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. We open the pages and we get a glimpse of God's judgment on sin. And in this particular scene, all the inhabitants of earth are summoned, not as spectators, but as defendants in this courtroom scene. Their creator has charges against them. And God has the right to summon 
earth because he's not just the God of Jerusalem. He's not just the God of Moresheth. He's not just the God of Israel. He is the God of all creation. And so whether people acknowledge him or not, all people will answer to him. That was true in Micah's day. It is true in this day as well. And so then in verse 3, the Lord comes down. He leaves his holy temple and his arrival alters the landscape of the planet, poetically speaking. Micah said in verse 4 that the mountains melt, the valleys split and melt like wax. We heard that same language in Psalm 97 just a little bit ago, read by Pastor Mike. Micah is telling us that the judge of mankind is not distant, nor is he safe. When he comes in judgment, it is time to tremble. The reality of God's judgment on our sin should cause us no small amount of fear. It is proper. That's the fear that is proper. This fear of the Lord, knowing that our sin deserves judgment. Micah shows us that God's judgment on sin is exercised in many different ways. Throughout his ministry, he talks of God's judgment in these ways. God's judgment looks like national destruction. It looks like divine withdrawal. It looks like exile. It looks like national humiliation. It looks like futility. And I think what strikes me the most about these descriptions of judgment, Micah doesn't talk about judgment just as some fiery future. It is present tense language. These things are here now as God's judgment is unfolded in the present tense on the sins of his people. If all human beings have a sin problem, then all human beings have a date with God's judgment. God's judgment on sin is certain. It is terrifying. It is just. It is right. He does not judge innocent people guilty. The verdict against us is proper because of our sin against God. We have rebelled against him and we deserve his judgment. But Micah told us something really incredible about God at the end of his book. The book opens with judgment, but flip back to chapter 7 and look at verse 18. The book opened with judgment, but it closes with mercy. Verse 18, chapter 7, who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He delights in faithful love. That truth is seen in, that, in God's response to our sin with mercy. He doesn't delight in wrath. He doesn't delight in anger and punishment and judgment. He delights in mercy, in showing mercy even to sinners like us. Not everyone will endure God's wrath, but God who is rich in mercy will have for himself a remnant of believers who will receive his forgiveness and restoration just as he promised to Abraham and Jacob long ago. How does that remnant come about? How does God accomplish this work of of showing mercy to people who otherwise deserve judgment. Well, Micah tells us that that mercy comes to us through the Messiah. 
God's anointed deliverer of his people. And Micah makes three explicit references to the Messiah in his book. First of all, he calls the Messiah the breaker who delivers his people in chapter 2. He's going to break them out of their bondage. He's the breaker. Second, he's the ruler from Bethlehem who brings peace in chapter 5. Rulers don't come from Bethlehem. David did. But other than that, the ruler over God's people, the Messiah who carries out God's program, shouldn't come from Bethlehem. He should come from Jerusalem or some other seat of power. But he's a humble ruler from Bethlehem who's going to bring peace. And then Micah tells us he's the shepherd who protects in chapter 7. He's the breaker who delivers, the ruler who gives peace, the shepherd who protects. How exactly does the Messiah accomplish these things? Well, that's something Micah doesn't talk about. Throughout the course of his ministry, we we don't have any place recorded here in the book of Micah where he talks about the means by which the Messiah accomplishes, accomplishes these things. But Micah had a contemporary, another prophet, at the same time, doing ministry at the same time as Micah, and his name was Isaiah. Micah was out in the rural villages of Judah. Isaiah is in the capital city of Jerusalem. And Isaiah had insight as to how the Messiah would bring about this rescue. Look at what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verse 6. Isaiah said, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. The him is the Messiah, the breaker, the ruler, the shepherd. He will be punished for our sin. God's mercy does not negate God's judgment. God's mercy only redirects his judgment. It's important that you catch this. This is why the cross is so vital to our right standing with God. God's mercy doesn't mean he takes our judgment away. It means he redirects that judgment, and that judgment goes to the Messiah, who is Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And Micah didn't know how all that was going to happen. He he doesn't speak to the mechanisms of redemption. Uh, Micah didn't know that stuff, but you know that stuff. You know Easter. You know Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And Micah, even not knowing those things, ended his book erupting in praise to God for his salvation How much more reason do you have to praise God for the mercy he has shown you in Jesus Christ? God responds to human sin with judgment and with mercy. And that mercy is still an act of judgment because judgment goes to the cross where Jesus died in your place for your sin. So Micah's telling us the gospel in these major themes. The bad news Sin is a universal problem. How does God respond? With judgment that's proper, but he also extends mercy to those who would come to him through the Messiah. The third theme of Micah that highlights the gospel for us is about heaven. God's people will enjoy eternal flourishing. When God's mercy lands, what what does it change about the future for God's people? 
And Micah has a lot to say about our eternity with God. And I think it's best described in chapter 4. So look with me at chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And as we read through these verses, I want to highlight how Micah describes that eternal day. What's it going to be like? In verse 1, Micah says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. So eternity is a time and place where God reigns supreme. He said, God's mountain will be on top of the other mountains. It, it's like a parfait of mountains. God's at the top. His mountain is supreme over all. That's, that speaks of his supreme position and standing. He reigns without rival in these last days, that eternal day. Evil is no more and the manifestations of evil are no more. God reigns supreme. Continuing, verse 1, he says, People will stream to it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So eternity is also a time and place where nations are gathered to their heavenly Father. His mountain, nations stream up. Water doesn't stream up, but in this miraculous calling, the nations stream up the holy mountain to be with their God. Uh, the Apostle John caught a glimpse of this scene as well. In the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 9, listen to what John described. He said, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Micah and John saw the same thing. Our God is a global God and he has appointed for himself people from every nation. Continuing on with his description of eternity, verse 3 Micah says, God will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. Eternity is a time and place of peace. No more wars, no more weaponry, no more fighting. God sets everything right forever. And then finally, verse 4 each person will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of armies has spoken. Eternity is a time and place where everyone flourishes. No more fear, no more anxiety, no more doubts, no more worry, no more tears, no more lack. Every sad thing is undone. And for all eternity we experience the unending delight of the provision and the presence of God. If you want to know what heaven is like, sit in Micah 4 and just live with that vision and see all that God holds for us in this eternal, glorious, beautiful future. Micah tells us about the problem of sin. He tells us about God's response, its judgment and mercy. He tells us of the outcome of God's mercy, its, its eternal flourishing. And the fourth and final theme of Micah that informs us of the gospel is a call to action. God's people live courageously in light of our future.
He calls us to action repeatedly throughout this book. To live in the here and now in the real courage of faith in God. Micah himself showed real courage and resiliency in the face of extreme societal pressure. He was a man with God's word in his bones and he lived in a world that hated him. I mean, think about this. The more Micah was obedient to God, the more he was hated by the people around him. And to live that sort of life, to carry out that ministry over decades took real courage. And so we see glimpses of courage and a call to share in that courage in a few different places in Micah. In Micah chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, As for me, however, I am filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. And then in chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Though all the peoples walk in the name of their own gods, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. These are present tense statements. His confidence in God's future promises solidifies his obedience in the present. He has this knowledge. He knows where history is going. He knows what that future flourishing will be like. And right now, I'm not going to do anything that, that defies God's revealed will. I'm not going to do anything that takes me out of the path that God has for me. Look, Micah was... I mean, he was a nothing man in the scope of the society he lived in. He may not have had a seat of power, but he had the word of the Lord. And he may not have had the respect of his neighbors, but he had the favor of the Lord. And he didn't have an army or judges or politicians, but he had omnipotence on his side. And so now is the time, brothers and sisters, for courage in the family of faith. And I'm not speaking of hypotheticals and I'm not speaking in hyperbole. Today is a day to be courageous in your walk with the Lord. The point of application that I think is most salient is who we are and what we believe as followers of Jesus related to sexuality and marriage and gender. And it's going to take real courage if you're going to walk with Jesus faithfully in a world that sees everything different. Have you felt the pressure? Everyone around us walks in the name of their own gods. Have you felt that pressure? Maybe neighbors asking, why... Why don't you celebrate Pride Month? Or why, why don't you fly a rainbow flag at your house? Or maybe students at school, you've faced intense pressure or isolation or harsh comments because of your faith in Christ. Maybe just even in conversations with your own family members, you've been called homophobic or transphobic. When you walk in the name of Jesus, you're going to face intense pressure for your trust in Him. And so how will you respond when that pressure from society increases, when it, when it comes from within your own home and family? You have a, a couple of options. You can hate them. And there are many people who hate homosexuals and transgender people and their allies. And there are people that hate them in the name of Jesus. 
And that sort of hypocrisy takes no courage. Or you can affirm them. And there are people that affirm sin in the name of Jesus. And that takes no courage. Gay people, transgender people, all the time, they, they, they have these voices speaking to them. I hate you or I affirm you. But the person who walks with Jesus does neither of those things. We do not hate and we do not affirm. We cannot hate because of God's word and we cannot affirm because of God's word. We must not abandon Jesus in order to accommodate people who need Jesus. And if you hate them, you abandon Jesus. And if you affirm them, you abandon Jesus. They need the hope that comes from Jesus Christ. There are many... I don't clap for me because it doesn't take courage to say this in this setting. It takes courage to live it out there. There are many of our neighbors, not all, but there are many outside the faith who see us as purveyors of hate because we would say there is hope and healing in Jesus Christ. Even just this week, our sister church here in Hingham, the Ark Church, has been called to account by our neighbors because they are a gospel-preaching church with historic, orthodox, biblical values related to sexuality and gender and marriage, and they meet in Hingham High School. And so our neighbors are angry about that and are saying all kinds of vile things about them. This is not hypothetical. It's very unlikely in my unexpert opinion that the ARC church gets booted out of the high school. I don't think that's going to happen. But if it does, I've instructed our leaders that we're going to be aggressively hospitable to our sister church to make sure they have space to worship and a place to continue to proclaim the gospel. And I uh, spoke with their pastor, Lauren Bishop, my dear friend, this week to encourage him. And he expressed his gratitude to our church for our support and, and, and our togetherness with them uh, over their brief history, just a year and a half old as a church. We have to walk with Jesus if we're going to walk in courage. And when you walk with Jesus, you'll hear the voice of Jesus in these moments where pressure intensifies. And you'll hear Jesus say this in Matthew 5, 11, and 12. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And you'll also hear Jesus say in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So when we walk in the name of the Lord our God, we'll have courage to love as Jesus loves. That's what changes souls. That's what changes lives is that sort of courageous love in the name of Jesus. And I want to speak to a moment to you. What if you yourself deal with same-sex attraction or transgender feelings? It's something that you personally are dealing with. Look, you also need courage. Because there are two competing voices in your ear. One is a harsh religious voice that says, pray it away, don't talk about it, don't think about it. And if you don't get over this, it's just proof that you are going to hell forever. And the other voice comes from society. And it's a voice that says, this is who you truly are. Accept it. 
Embrace it. Because if you don't embrace it fully, then you will be living in hell today. But when you walk with Jesus, here's what you'll hear him say. In Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And he says in John 5, truly I tell you, anyone, anyone, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. And when you come to Jesus, you'll hear him say in Matthew 9, Have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Have courage, daughter, your faith has saved you. Friends, don't be afraid. Walk courageously with Jesus this day in the power of the Spirit. There's four major themes in the book of Micah that highlight the gospel for us. It's the problem of sin. God's response in judgment and mercy. God's promise of an ultimate redemption where we flourish forever. And then finally, it's a call to courage here and now to walk with our God no matter what. Micah has given us the good shepherd who forgives all our iniquity and casts our sins into the sea. And so what difference should the book of Micah have on our faith? Well, I think the appropriate response is awe at God's stunning love for sinners like us in Christ. Micah has given us God's incredible salvation work on our behalf through the deliverance that comes from the Messiah. And God's love for us in Christ is simply amazing. I want you to hear how the Puritan John Owen talked about being amazed at the love of God for sinners. Look at what John Owen said. He said, How many millions of sins in every one of the elect, every one of which is enough to condemn them all, hath this love overcome what mountains of unbelief doth it remove look upon the conduct of any one saint consider the frame of his heart see the many stains and spots the defilements and infirmities with which his life is contaminated and tell me whether the love that bears with all this is not to be admired and is not the same towards thousands every day what streams of grace Purging, pardoning, quickening, assisting, do flow from it every day. This is our beloved. We are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement at his unspeakable love. So may you be convinced by Micah of God's astonishing love for you. And being rooted and firmly established in his love, may you be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses all knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you for your mercy to us, undeserved and unmerited. We are are the worst of sinners. And even as the redeemed, our hypocrisies sometimes run deep. But Lord, you are faithful when we are unfaithful. You are merciful and kind. You delight to show faithful love. I'm so grateful that that's the kind of God you are because of the kind of people we are. Father, thank you for so great a salvation as this. Father, in this month, Pride Month, Pray for our beloved ones who wrestle with same-sex attraction. 
who deal with gender issues of all kinds, who deal with all kinds of inner turmoil related to that. Lord, they are made in your sight. They are precious and beautiful, and we love them, and you love them. And Lord God, we pray you would be gentle with them and lead them to the hope and healing that is found in Jesus Christ. Father, protect their ears from every hypocritical rant of hate. Father, open their hearts to your love and your mercy and your kindness. Lord, may it be said of us that as we have followed you, we have loved much. Lord, give us the courage to love others as Jesus has loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who 